Hey everyone, I'm here at the Open Source Summit in Dublin, Ireland, and I have a little news for you. For the past several weeks, we've been talking to founders. As you well know, we're doing this Tech Founder Odyssey series. Well, now we have some new hosts. Colleen Call and Heather Jocelyn are taking the reins and they're gonna be doing the interviews. They have a great style, very much down to earth, interviews with people who are telling their stories about being founders. These are people who are engineers by background, software developers, people who really have stories to tell about how they came to where they are today. So check it out, the Tech Founder Odyssey series on the new Stack Bankers with Heather Jocelyn and Colleen Cole. You're listening to the New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. And welcome to the New Stack's latest podcast series, The Tech Founder Odyssey. It's a part of our Makers podcast series. We're speaking with some of the most interesting technical founders in the cloud native industry. And I am Heather Joslin from the New Stack, and I'm here with my colleague and co host, Colleen Call. Hi, Colleen. Hello, Heather. Hello, Charity. Glad to be here. Hi. <laughs> and as Colleen indicated, our guest today is Charity Majors, uh, CTO and co founder of Honeycomb.io. She is well known to the readers of the new stack as a thought leader in the observability field and also in engineering management. Previously, she was at Parse and Facebook. She started Honeycomb.io as an observability platform company with Christine Yen in 2016. The company, which serves customers including HelloFresh, Stripe, and Slack, was named in June by Gartner as a leader in the Magic Quadrant for application performance monitoring and observability. Thus far, Honeycomb.io has raised just under $97 million, including a $50 million Series C funding round. It closed last October 2021, led by Inside Partners, which, disclosure time, <laughs> owns, owns the new stack. In May, O'Reilly published Observability Engineering, which Charity uh, co-wrote. It's been a busy time. Thank you for joining us, Charity. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am a big fan of the new stack, so it's fun to be here. Oh, excellent. Thank you. It's nice to hear. <laughs> yes. So when I was researching your story for this podcast, we discovered that you started out planning a career in, in uh, classical piano performance. Yeah. I was wondering if yeah. you could tell us how you got from there to uh, the world of uh, computers and operations yeah. and observability. I, I can try. It's not entirely clear to me sometimes, but... Yeah, I went, I went to school. I got a piano scholarship. I was 16 years old in Idaho, homeschooled. So didn't really know what I was doing. I just needed to get out, right? And I got to college and I started taking my music classes. And then I realized over the course of that first year that music majors tended to still be hanging around the music department in their 30s and 40s. And nobody really <laughs> had very much money. And they were all doing it for the love of the game. you know. And I was just like, I, I don't want to be poor for the rest of my life. I, I've been poor <laughs> enough. It's not really any fun. I would like to not be poor. <laughs> And around that time, like I was really fortunate, I think, to have, have been starting out when I was because this is, you know, early 2000s, dot com, you know, it was buzzing. They were mm -hmm. willing to take anyone who 
knew what Unix was, right? Interview questions would be like, do you know how to use VI, you know? And, and so I got into running systems. I ran the math stat department at the U of I. I ran, you know, they actually gave me root the entire university at one point, which I don't think they do anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, and I made my way to Silicon Valley and I've been here ever since. So you were among other places, you were at Parse, you were, which was bought by Facebook. And, um, can you, can you place us back at the beginning of, of Honeycomb? Um, what problem were you and Christine trying to solve and, and what prompted you to create the, the company? Yeah, Christine and I were coworkers at Parse. Uh, Christine single-handedly built and ran our, our Parse analytics product, and and I was the first infrastructure hire, so I was responsible for keeping it running, right? And <laughs> it was very hard to keep running. Like Parse was going down constantly because, you know, well, not to get too technical, but like it was built on you know Ruby on Rails, which will have a fixed pool of HTTP workers. And you'd be running at, you know, 20, 25%, you know, utilization. And then within two seconds, you know, if a new app hit the iTunes top 10, you know, two seconds later, the entire thing could go down like faster than anyone could, could even respond. And this happened over and over and over. And it was so hard to, it was hard to figure out what to do because, you know, we invested a lot in the last generation of monitoring technology. We had all these dashboards, we had all these graphs. But in order to figure out what's going on, you kind of had to know in advance what was going to break. You couldn't make a dashboard for something until you knew what, what to make a dashboard for. And every single time it'd be something different. We could, you know, it would only take us hours sometimes, you know, maybe because it, it often it wouldn't be the app with the with the largest traffic, right? It would be so, an app that was doing something new. Um, and, and, you know, but, but when stuff started to go down, everything got slow because everything got slow. Right. And so it was really hard to like pick apart, which of these needles is causing, you know, everything to go down. And while I think that, you know, my team and I were pretty good at this stuff, it was, it was, it was just an impossible problem. We made very little headway until we got to Facebook and, you know, we started rewriting the backend in Golang. So we have threads and we could do more concurrency. But the other thing we started doing was piping these data sets into a tool at Facebook called Scuba, which was not, a, it was kind of, I think of it as being aggressively hostile to users. Like it was not an easy <laughs> tool to use. It was not a fun tool, but it did one thing really well, which is it let you slice and dice in real time on dimensions of very high cardinality. And when I talk about cardinality, it's like, imagine you have a, a, a data set of like a hundred million users the high cardinality dimensions are going to be the ones with like lots of unique items, social security number, right? Or request ID. Any unique ID is going to be the highest possible cardinality. And low cardinality would be like, you know, <laughs> species equals human, right? Only one possible, right? And, and the thing about the, the last generation of monitoring technology is it was all built around low cardinality dimensions. It couldn't handle more than like 200 unique items unique items per set. So, you know, it was just, it was just impossible, but Scooby handled high cardinality dimensions. And so we could start shipping in things and breaking down on things like app ID, which we had never been able to do before. Right. And so we started to get a handle on our, on our, on our reliability problem, you know, and I'm an ops, like I moved on, on to the next problem. Right. It wasn't until I was thinking of leaving Facebook that I suddenly went, Oh shit. Like I don't 
sorry. I don't, I don't know how to <laughs> It's engineer. a family podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just, Apologies. we're just kidding. <laughs> I don't know how to engineer anymore without these tools that we've built atop this. Like it's become so core. It's not just how we get the system up when it's gone down. It's how, it, it's my five senses. Like it's, it's how I understand what's happening. It's how I decide what to work on. It's how I know what, what we're working on is working or not. Like until you seen it another way you don't realize how much of, of your development was spent just developing blind literally with a blindfold you're just kind of like writing some code shipping it off and like praying <laughs> and at some point maybe you get alerted and maybe you don't and if you don't you're like woohoo you know and but you're not you can't actually see what's happening yeah. um and so the idea of going back to that was just it, it was just unthinkable for someone with, with an ego like me like going back to the you know, someone <laughs> less powerful as an, of an engineer was just like I can't do that Christina had a very similar experience kind of from like, she's, she's a front end software engineer and she has similar experience, although different, which was that, you know, so our, our analytics product was built on the same stuff as, you know, Datadog. It's, it's all time series, you know, databases under the hood. And she had had this experience where our users kept coming to her and being like, why can't I do this in parse analytics? And she'd have to go to scuba to look up, manually look up the answers for them. She was professionally insulted by this. She's like, why can't I build a product that will help our, our users get their answers? So we came with this in very different angles, but the same one, just frustration. Like this, this should be possible because everyone at the time was saying, this is not possible. It can't be done. And we knew it could be done. We had just seen it done. But at the time, and I know I'm just like talking and talking, but like at the time, we really, we really thought that this was going to be a really niche problem that people, only platforms have this problem where you've got this platform and you're tr trying to like treat them all kind of blindly as one, but every single application on your platform also has all of these users. And they're, and, and so you have this fractal, you, you, it's just a very high cardinality problem by the time you get down to your users, users, uh, and their users, it's just, there's like millions of them. Um, so we thought this was going to be a platform solution. And it wasn't until we were like the first year starting to talk to people and we started to realize, oh no, this is becoming an everyone problem. Because mm -hmm. it used to be that we'd have like the LAMP stack. You had the application, the database, and the web tier, right? All of that complicated logic was wrapped up inside the application. And you can create dashboards for the rest of it. You can't do that anymore because you've got not the app. You've got like how many different services, how many different storage locations, how many different ways to ingest your data between serverless and like endpoints and blah, 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 blah. Everything is a high cardinality dimension now. And the old generation of tools, and you, it, you hit a wall really fast and really hard. Well, that's an interesting side of things because you had mentioned the differences in background that you have. I mean, you being an ops engineer and her being a dev, and the, but you had a commonality of your frustration. <laughs> so, yeah. so with still with the frustration of trying to solve a problem, how did the difference in the tech backgrounds for both you and Christine, what role did that play in building your company in the beginning? If you did come together from frustration, uh, what? Yeah. How did the uh, difference play a role in other parts of the journey? Absolutely. And and to be clear, my entire career has been rage-driven development. You know, <laughs> I'm not one of those people who's like, that sounds cool. I'm going to go play with that. It's, this isn't working. I'm going to go fix it from anger. I feel like I burn it as a pretty clean burning fuel, but it, there is a lot of rage at the bottom of it all. <laughs> but yeah, like she came from the front end side. I came from the back end side and she had what she had that I didn't. She's been working on, you know, you know, front end stuff her entire career. And so she had this incredible empathy for 
for the user experience, which I didn't, you know, I had never developed products like that. And I was like, just build the database and the users will come. And she knew very <laughs> early on that it's a user experience that will, you know, sink us or, or, or make us. But like, so early on, I had to be CEO for three and a half years. And then, and then we switched positions about three and a half years ago. And now she's been CEO for three and a half years. So that's, that's another interesting role <laughs> exchange that, <laughs> that we had to go through. How, how did you decide to move to the, did you feel comfortable in the C CEO role or did you? Oh, I hated it. I hated oh, it. How come? Yeah. I had never intended to be CEO. We had a third founder who just didn't work out and they were going to be CEO. But no, I'm not constitutionally. What you want in a CEO is someone who is reliable, predictable, dependable, someone who doesn't mind showing up every Tuesday at 1030 to talk to the same people. I'm, I'm exaggerating somewhat, but you, you want yeah. this, someone who's very structured and I am not, I am not structured. I really chafe against that stuff. And I mean, sometimes if you're not too structured, it might work out <laughs> even for a CEO. I think it can. I, I think it can. I think that, well, so there's this interesting book. I don't usually go for pop side, but there's this book called, you know, the four tendencies and it's about what motivates you, right? Interly and externally? Do you get a lot of joy and satisfaction from setting goals and, and meeting them or or do you not? So like, you know, it, the, the, the upholder type is the type of like, yes, you get a lot of joy and satisfaction from upholding other people's goals and your own. Then there's the type where it's like, you need a gym buddy, right? You can, just, <laughs> you can meet external ex expectations, but you, not your own, right? And then there's the inverse. You know, you can, if you're motivated, you can do it, but you can't really live up to other people's. And then there's the other type, which just kind of rejects both. And, and I'm that type, which is, mm. I think, and the book even said, this is not the type of personality that a CEO should have, somewhat jokingly. <laughs> but it's true. You can't, it's not good for the company. So early on, though, like it was a state of chaos. Like we didn't think we were going to survive. And that's where I thrive. So it kind of, it took us about three and a half years to reach product market fit. And that's when we switched roles. And I think that was that was exactly the right thing to do. I came across an interview in uh, in uh, Insider website in which you said that because you and Christine had come from Facebook, there was people were, quote, throwing money at you when you when you <laughs> launched the company. And first of all, congratulations on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you people throwing money at you when you're yeah. a startup founder. Startup founder and a woman in tech. That's just fantastic. I speak in hyperbole if that wasn't clear. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, what was seeking funding like in the beginning? And, and Yeah, well, we didn't seek it. That was kind of the key. Like, there were people who were coming to us like, you know, do you want $2 million for a seed thing? which is good because we had no, I've seen the slides that we put together and they are laughable. Like I wouldn't, if I had seen those slides as an investor, I would have run the other way. <laughs> like We did not know what we were doing. You know, I had never had a pedigree before. I've never, I don't come from, I was a dropout, right? I didn't work at companies that everybody had heard of. It wasn't until I was coming out of Facebook that, you know, you have this pedigree and people, People pattern and it, and it was infuriating to me. I I really hated it because I did not learn to be a better engineer at Facebook, you know. And and part of me kind of wanted to just reject it, but I also felt this like responsibility on behalf of all dropouts and queer women everywhere to like take the money and and do something with it. So it worked out. That's interesting. You brought up you're a dropout, uh, but you also worked at Facebook, and then yeah. I I was running past uh, a talk you gave. Uh, in January, uh, the code freeze at the University of Minnesota. And then you would mention uh, something that 
spark that rage <laughs> is that the statement that elite teams are made up of oh, Facebook, yeah. Google, and MIT grads. And, and then there's you. <laughs> and you yeah. are just this successful uh, startup founder with money being thrown at her. So which brings me to our other question is like, I mean, in order for you to be successful, you have to have high performing employees. Mm -hmm. How many employees do you have now? How do you feel that's a difference between a growing company and a scaling company? And what do you look for when you do hire? Yeah, that's a great question. We're up to almost 200 people now, which is crazy. For the first five years of our existence, we didn't, we only had like 12 engineers, three to 12. And, but then two years ago, we doubled in size and, and last year we doubled in size. So yeah, you, you do have to have high performing and high performing teams is something that I think about like almost obsessively. One of the best ways to get high performing employees I found is people who have graduated these accelerators, these hack, hack academies, people who have grown up, had jobs, they're adults. And then they go through this, this boot camp and they come out the other side, they tend to be exceptional. You know, they're mature. They know their stuff. We've hired a few of them at Honeycomb and they're just like, they're, they're incredible because those hack academies are, are pretty choosy about who they let in. Right. And, and it's pretty difficult and, you know, you don't get through that unless you're, you're pretty good at what you do. We believe that, you know, when, especially when it comes to engineering, we don't expect <laughs> a lot of companies will put out these laundry lists and you must have this tech, this language, blah, blah, blah your skill as an engineer is to learn. Like you can learn what you need to learn. Most definitely. If yeah. you if you have the you know enough of the the base knowledge in order to to do that learning. Something that we really select for in our hiring process that I think a lot of companies don't is communication ability. And everybody says they want communication skills. But a lot of people don't actually like pay a lot of attention to it. I believe that great teams, <laughs> these so so-called great engineers keep coming out of Google, Facebook, Uber, whatever. And in my mind, most of that is be they're great because they were at Google or Facebook and Uber, not they go they went there because they were great, right? Because after you've worked in that environment next to so many smart people, all these incredibly complex systems that you can't find, find anywhere else in the world, yeah, you're going to be a great engineer, <laughs> you know? So we, we believe that, you know, you make great engineers by making great teams and great teams are the ones that learn together and improve. They're the ones that are really paying attention to what didn't work and how can we not repeat that? And they feel safe enough to experiment. They feel, you know, and a lot of this sounds squishy and easy and it's not, right? You do have to pair it with a certain, you know, technical excellence, but but the way, you know, I've seen so many quote unquote great engineers who can write code all day long and it's good <laughs> code, but you put them on a team and it doesn't make a great team, you know, and, and I've seen these great teams made up of engineers that, yeah, they're not the best software writers in the world, but goddamn, they make great teams together because they hold each other to it. They're constantly learning from each other. They're constantly teaching each other. They're constantly, they're very introspective. They're looking at what didn't work. You know, they're trying to fix the things that don't work instead of just getting adjusted to them and like normalizing it. Yeah. Pedigrees are not the end all be all in my opinion. So with that in mind, when you started the company, it can be 
consuming, stressful? Uh, Where do you find a work-life balance and how do you de-stress? Oh, um, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't figure out how to fix this. I lost my marriage (laughs) during the startup years. I, I didn't learn. I did. I don't know the answer to this. I honestly don't. I think that less stubborn founders would have given in many times. And I think that genuinely that probably would have been the right thing to do from a human perspective. Well, I want to get back a little bit to the to the funding issue and when the idea that people are throwing money at you is a little bit of hyperbole, but is but it sounds like people are coming are coming to you. Yeah. Are there any is there any advice you would have yeah. for especially founders who who do not come from a business or finance background but come from a technical background in yeah. dealing with investors? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing one piece of advice that I give a lot to, you know, women and people of color and, you know, is that investing a little bit in your public speaking skills and making yourself a bit of a profile like being externally known for what you do is really it's really helpful because it counterbalances the default assumptions that you're not technical or that you're not as good, right? People who are known, someone who is known for doing Kubernetes is automatically assumed to be better at Kubernetes than someone who isn't. And in fact, there is almost no correlation. You know, most of the great engineers I've ever known have no public presence whatsoever. Um, And the ones who I do know, you know, they, some of them are great, but on average, they're not, they're, they're about the same. They're, they, they have a public profile because they've invested in having a public profile, right? And But we overweight that, right? We're like, ah, somebody who's known for this must be great. And so I feel like it balances out. And I feel like, you know, if, if, if someone can Google your name and plus a technology and something comes up, like you're assumed to be a fucking expert. Sorry, you're assumed <laughs> to be an expert. And I think that that really works to people's advantage. And I think more people, it's not, anyone can write an article and put it on Medium right? It's not that hard. It doesn't have to be your, your, your part-time job or, or a full-time job or anything, but like investing a little bit in, in your own public profile as an expert in the technologies that you care about really pays dividends. But don't you think there's almost like a opposite effect for women and people of color if you do invest in your profile and saying, uh, which is almost like when you do that, that you were supposed to be known for this particular niche in tech, don't you find yourself being challenged at the same point that, oh, well, this person invested in their profile and they think that they, they're experts in no. observability or whatever. Well, let's test no. her. <laughs> no, not at That's all. That's not been my experience, but there's a lot of ways to do this, right? Like one, one way you can become known for technology is not by position yourself as an expert, but, but positioning yourself as a questioner and a learner and someone who's like, you know, writing about your own journey as you're, as you're going through it and something that's authentic like that. You know, I think I've never, I've never, well, that's not true. I've had, you know, douchebags kind of like, well, actually me at conferences, but you know, yeah. they're, whatever. <laughs> it really happens on the internet for whatever no, reason. That's, that's, um, that's good to know. That really is. I wanted to ask a little bit about, so we talked about the, 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 the team that you have and, and you have about 200 employees now. How did you get people to join you in the beginning? And how did you, it's a challenge sometimes with your, with a startup to get people to make the leap. Yeah. Well, the first few employees, and for the first two years, it was really just four or five of us, were people that we knew well, that we had worked with before. And it's just, I feel like that's the best way to do it. And you don't want to set that pattern and stick to that pattern, especially if you're just a bunch of white dudes. Um, <laughs> but like building something new is so hard 
and and you you know the, the more you can predict how each other works and the more that you know that you can work with someone the better because you're like a family i spent way more time with with my co-founder and the first few employees than, than i did with my own family for the first few years but after that so honeycomb has never struggled to hire engineers in fact every time we've tried to hire we've had a line out the door and this is unique like my other founder friends hate me <laughs> when i say this we we hired our first rec- recruiter ever just this year. So so my take on that is we were very vocal, even very early on, that tech hiring is super broken. Interviewing sucks. We have a lot of empathy for people who are interviewing. We don't want to... We might fail in some new ways, but we're at least going to try and fail in new ways, right? We're not going to fail the same old ways that everybody is scarred and traumatized by. So we wrote some blog posts about that. They got some traction. And a lot of people were just like, oh my gosh, this sounds, what a relief, right? I wrote this one blog post called The Real 17 Reasons I Don't Hire You or something like that, which is such a clickbaity title. But like the real reasons that we don't hire people are we can only hire like one person, you know, or maybe you're too senior, right? I don't believe in building teams that are all as senior as you can possibly get. That's not a healthy team. Or maybe there are just all these reasons that have nothing to do with you not being awesome, right? By the time we're interviewing someone, we already think you're amazing there's a great chance we're going to want to work with you in the future. If we can't work with you now, it tears us up. Sometimes the decisions that we have to make, the choices that we have to make between this amazing person and that amazing person, but we don't have, we don't have the meat grinder. We don't, we don't have that. Well, we could hire out take 2000 people this year. You know, it's not like that as a startup. You, every single person that you're going to hire is a strategic necessity, right? You're like, I'm hiring this person to do these specific things. And if the candidate is not the person that does these specific things and can help us in this specific way, it doesn't matter how amazing they are. We can't hire them, right? And I feel like just being open about that was, I think, really helpful because interviewing and hiring, it's just so hard. Your ego always, it always hurts to be told <laughs> no, right? And yeah. so, and, and there's this incredible asymmetry where by all rights, these highly qualified people who are at the top of their career they're just amazing they're highly desired it should be an it should be a two-way street right they should be evaluating us just as much as we're evaluating them and it should feel like it's equals but it doesn't it never does right because there's a team of people that you know but like the more we can just like make it clear that that's how we see it and that we we are so for example one thing uh, that we we've always done is I think that one of the worst things about interviews is being surprised, being surprised by a question, you know, cause you're like, Oh, if I had five minutes to Google, I could brush up, up on this. I can remind <laughs> myself. So we don't surprise people. We tell them in yeah. advance what the questions are going to be. Here's what we're going to cover. If they want to refresh their, go for it. Right. Like we, we try not to make questions that, you know, you have to have, you know, fresh in mind, but, but if you want to go for it, you know, because I feel like, that feeling oh, that wasn't fair, you know, like I, I could have done so much better or, or like, I know I could have done that or that's just the worst. <laughs> and, and it doesn't make us hire any, any better when we, when we ask people for not doing that. Right. So yeah. just like acknowledging that, you know, Hey, surprises suck. And we're, we're going to try and make sure that you don't have any is, is something we've always tried to do. Well, it sounds like one other thing that I'll say, having women founders, is amazing for hiring so many people and it's mostly white dudes are just like i'm i'm so tired of working for an exec team that looks just like me 
And, and, and it, for, for a while, I found that offensive. It's like being told that they want to date you because you're a woman. You know? <laughs> okay, is there anything else about us that you like? Yeah, you but have to be re- I, I, really careful with that. I mean, do, just, but yeah. take it in the spirit it was intended, right? And, and yeah. there is such a hunger out there for people. They want to work for diverse teams and diverse executive yes. teams. And so, you know, I think one of the best things that founders can do is just, you know, have a founding team that's diverse. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, you have to be really, really particular and very careful, uh, even as me being a woman in tech, that why did you want to invite me to do this? Yeah. Is it not just because I look yeah. like the template? Is because you did your research and yeah. you saw that I had a good, you know, perspective. I could have a good perspective for speaking or, or uh, yeah. joining the uh, project. But no, I mean, I, I understand, but you still have to be careful on how you yeah. how you solicit or you invite as to why totally. you want them to join. So from that perspective, I get it because it's also it's it's great being invited and, you know, they yeah. need us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, OK, you know, here, throw in this template. We need a woman on this, you know, and so and then. Yeah. It's, it's we so like insulting. be invited to the party, but, you know, be invited to the table. But we also would like to be involved as well. So exactly. But it sounds like your biggest success. I mean, one of your big successes is uh, hiring. Is there have been yeah. any uh, uh, failures uh, connected to oh, your journey? Of course, <laughs> of course I'm not going to admit to it. <laughs> no, of course I will. In fact, this is on the topic of failure. I Just last month, uh, I was... You know, because we have this like, we have all hands every other week, you know, and there's a rotation, you know, of which departments we're presenting. And, and this last month, I was like, okay, from now on, let's make sure that the updates are like two thirds, like positive, yay us, and one third, this is what broke, this is what didn't work, this is what failed. Because I, I feel like normalizing discuss, most experiments fail, most things fail. And if we don't feel as free to talk about them, if we don't celebrate, you know, understanding and growth, like it's just, it, yeah, I'm a big fan of failure. It's nice. That's how you learn. But as for <laughs> as for like mistakes in hiring, yeah, like early on, Christine and I, being such big believers in you can learn anything you want to, you can blah, 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 blah. We kept hiring people who weren't, didn't have the right qualifications for the job or didn't know how to do the job. And then we would try to be supportive. We would, it would stretch out for so long to the point where I re- I would realize we're just torturing the person. You know, there comes a <laughs> point where it's not, it's not helpful. It's not supportive. It, there comes a point where it's easier to just be like, this isn't working, is it? And we found that the hard way many times. We've gotten better at figuring how to, looking how to interview for potential, but also for like, if they don't have these skills, it's just not going to work, which is harder than it sounds. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. One, one more question is, is yeah. Honeycomb fully remote or hybrid or? Yeah, we, uh, we have an office in San Francisco and, you know, about a third of us were San Franciscans before the pandemic. We are 100% remote today, but we keep the office. And it's our remote folks who are the, who are the most insistent in this. They want there to be a, a home base, right? Where we can all come, have offsites, meet together. You know, we have like an office Tuesdays where people try and show up and see each other. But we are fully, we're fully distributed. We hired our first remote VP like two weeks before oh, the pandemic. That was good timing. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and even before that, we were doing this thing where every, once a quarter, we'd have a full week where it was like everyone works from home, even the C- C- CEO, like everyone goes home and works from there in order to build empathy for the people who aren't there all the time. Colin, you had one more question? Yeah. And uh, this is I think this is a fun one. Um I, I I was on your uh, website, Charity WTF, and you were describing your most recent post in August last month, how the rituals you created at past, in the past at other jobs. And you mentioned rituals do create a sense of belonging, which is very important when you hire. Uh, my particular favorite by <laughs> reading this list was uh, the one you created where you uh, shaved and or dyed the hair of some team members blue. <laughs> and uh, you can't recall why, but who cares, I can't right? Remember why? But yeah. <laughs> with that question, I do have a question: <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Did you create some rituals of your own while going through the whole journey uh, of founding um, Honeycomb? You, you or Christine. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that I have realized is that these kinds of rituals, they can't come top down. You know, if, if it's like the VP or the CEO who's like, this is a ritual we're going to have, then it's just forced fun. It's just your boss making you do something stupid. They really have to come <laughs> bottoms up. They have to come from individual contributors and line managers. That's where the fun happens, right? And then we can reflect it and all. But there are some things like in in the beginning, Christine and I would, when we would get stuck on something, we would just look at each other and go, everything is an experiment. Everything is an experiment, (laughs) right? There is no decision that is permanent. Everything will eventually be superseded or turned over or whatever. And it was really helpful to us for just like unblocking and, and, and forward motion. So that's not one of our company values. And yeah, so that's, that's the thing that most comes to mind. There, there were other rituals like, you know, oh my God, we had a, whole rice crispy year there was a i think that may, that I sounds think that may great some explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we also we're a big dog company so there would be dogs in the office all of our back-end services are named after dogs like you know <laughs> retriever is the database and you nice. know poodle is the front-end service and everything <laughs> That's great. I think that was awesome. You're making it fun. You got it. Well, I think we're, we're going to be wrapping up. And this has been a, a great conversation. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thank you for yeah. and thank you to the audience yeah, for joining course. us on this episode of the New Stacks podcast series, The Tech Founders Odyssey. We've been talking with Charity Majors, co-founder and CTO of Honeycomb.io, about how she helped create a company and what she's learned along the way. First of all, thank you, Colleen, for, for co-hosting. My pleasure, Heather and Charity. Thank you. Thank you, Charity. A, a wonderful conversation. Thank you both. It's been great. And uh, thank you for everyone for listening to the new, new Stacks, the Tech Founders Odyssey. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community. And we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube, Search for the new stack and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us and see you soon.